I learned about palliative care about two months before my mom passed away. After learning about what it had to offer, I was frustrated that I didn't know about this type of care sooner. Palliative care focuses on improving the overall wellness of individuals with serious illnesses. It addresses both the symptoms and the stress of living with a chronic disease. Different from hospice or end-of-life care, palliative care is designed to support the person with the illness as well as their loved ones. Palliate comes from the Latin word for cloak. To palliate is to cloak or cover up the symptoms of an illness without curing it. This meaning grew into the idea of alleviating or reducing suffering. Interesting, yes? Tune in, that's the topic we're discussing today. This episode is brought to you by Caregiver Chronicles, an eight-week online course covering everything from diagnosis through hospice. For more information, use the link in the show notes. Welcome to Fading Memories, a podcast with advice, wisdom, and hope from caregivers who have lived the experience and survived to tell the tale. Think of us as your caregiver best friend. With me today is another guest all the way from the UK, Esther Jones. She is going to talk to us about palliative care today. So thank you for joining me, Esther. Hello. Hi. So you are a palliative care nurse in the UK, is that correct? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a palliative care psychotherapist over in the UK. Oh, that's so even more important. I, I sort of deal with people's emotional well-being, families, and people with dementia, people with long-term conditions. Are you having to deal with emotional stuff more these days? Because you guys are in lockdown again. We're about to go into, well, as much as America's done lockdown. Yeah, I'm, you know, we've, it's been very, very intense over here, as I'm sure it has over there. Um, Lots of people in this country with terminal conditions have had their treatments withdrawn temporarily. Um, Similarly, I'm sure to you, those people that are vulnerable are being shielded. They've cut off from family and friends. Um, Many people in care homes are in a second wave of lockdown. So um, there's certainly people I've come across with living with dementia, living with brain tumors, so on and so forth, you know, being stuck in care homes with a fear of not being able to say goodbye to people so it has it's been a very anxious and painful time yeah so can you explain exactly what palliative care is because i was not familiar with the term or the Mm -hmm. service until february of this year 2020 so i'm certain that other people are in the same boat i was in Okay, well, from my understanding on the UK side, and I should know this because I do, I, I lecture in death and dying as well. So, but palliative, it comes from the word, well, a Latin word, in fact, called, I think it's palliari, which means to cloak. Mm. And I think the thinking of it is that you cloak someone that's terminally unwell with care, basically. In the UK, the, the hospice movement, which is, 
slightly distinct to palliative care, but the hospice movement emerged in the 1960s and was pioneered by a woman called Dame Cicely Saunders, who was, you know, really quite outraged at the level of end of life care that people were receiving. So it was a kind of, you know, revolutionary uh, kind of idea that people who were terminally ill didn't just need physical medical care, that they needed social care, spiritual care and psychological care. And she worked with this idea of total pain. So it was like had these four quadrants and the idea being that hospice care would provide a space, usually a standalone one in a house, to respond to the multiple needs of people that that were dying. Now, where that relates to people with dementia is, is, is that, you know, dementia is a long term terminal condition. People die from it. I think the difficulty still even in the UK is that dementia is one of the barriers to access of actually receiving palliative care and hospice care in the UK. I think partly because it's not explicitly termed very often as a terminal condition, which it is. Um, so the hospice, the hosp hospice care is usually in the UK at least in standalone buildings. Uh, it's usually, they're usually charities. It's part funded by the NHS, but mainly people are raising money, aren't they? Cutting their hair off, growing beards, <laughs> uh, running marathons, you name it. Um, and palliative, and, and, and you only can really access hospice provision when you're coming to the end of your, end of your life. And, you know, a consultant has said, look, there are no more treatment options. So that's when you might be referred on to hospice provision. Palliative care uh, is embedded in hospice in hospitals too in the UK, or you have standalone sort of community palliative care services with palliative care nurses, specialist nurses. Um, you can access that the minute you're diagnosed with a terminal condition. So even if you're on treatment, if you, I mean, probably the most obvious condition that, that, that we certainly see is cancer. So even if you're diagnosed with a terminal condition and you're getting chemo and radiotherapy, you can still be accessing palliative care at the same time. All the research bears out that if you access palliative care early, it might actually mean that you live longer because you're still getting that quite holistic care that is supportive both of the patient, but also family members. So it helps to contain people in their journey. I think it's trickier, though, to access it with dementia, because as you know yourself, people with dementia are often really quite capable for a long time. It's a very long disease trajectory sometimes, you know, seven, ten years it can be. And so you can have someone very, very able, you know, appearing at the shop still, buying their groceries, maybe a bit muddled, but, you know, cracking on. And so I think ordinarily someone with dementia probably is not going to access those services right from the get-go in the same way that someone with cancer might. So in the UK, people tend to access social care when they've got dementia before they'd access palliative care if that makes sense. We've got all these different rungs in the UK. And um, as I was saying to you earlier, lots of it, I think lots of the gaps in provision from the NHS are 
filled up by charities doing all sorts of work. I think the biggest difference accessing palliative care when your terminal illness is Alzheimer's or dementia is you're not undergoing a treatment as challenging as chemotherapy or radiation. Yeah. So it seems me have the social care. So we need to fix that gang would be to, well, I, I always advocate to my listeners and my followers on social media. And I preach this almost ad nauseum. When you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia, first off, most people have already known that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I strongly advocate people right then and there, put together a team. You may be perfectly capable of handling the majority of your daily responsibilities and your personal care, but it, it's surprising how all of a sudden you and the person that's like your spouse, for example, are all of a sudden overwhelmed. And now you're trying to, to get the services and the help and that's overwhelming. And it's just, it's all too much and people patch together various things. So I always suggest and the suggestion I just put out recently was, is make a list of the things that you're, that you're going to maybe need help with, especially senior citizens, you know, get a housekeeper, find the neighborhood teenager that can, you know, do the yard work, maybe an, an other elderly neighbor who is healthy, they can come in and, and do some social visiting so that you can take care of whatever else you need to take care of instead of sitting with your loved one. And then your adult children can fill in holes here and there. So make a list of what it is you do every day and what it, and who you think could help with that. Mm -hmm. That's my suggestion to people. So that sounds a lot like your social care. And, but if we learn about palliative care early on, then when things become overwhelming, the physical and emotional challenges of caring for somebody with Alzheimer's, when you have to help them toilet and help, you know, have like my mom had to have physically been showered mm. and she did not like that. So it was not, mm. it was a two person job because she fought people off. These are the kind of things that, and in my understanding, somebody with palliative, somebody receiving palliative care, it would help in a lot of those respects because it will help the person that's caring. It helps the person who needs the care. So the, in, Am I, am I kind of on the right track there? Well, you know what, what you're talking about is something that, that we do um, as part of the offering of palliative care. So we, we call it advanced care planning. So the idea being that the professional palliative care nurse would sit with the patient and loved ones and work out a kind of this is what I want from care this is what I don't want from care and of course it changes as you know I mean it's so changeable dementia um, and the experience of it but but effectively a sort of a long-term proposition I mean people even talk about how they'd want their funerals you know so in other words people don't um you know that's not true some people don't want to talk about it you know, to face your own death is, is one of the hardest possible things. But, but the thinking behind getting palliative care in early is to be able to try and name some of those really difficult, um, you know, and, and frightening kind of issues. And also it's, it's about 
I think bringing families closer through honest conversation. I mean, that's that's part of the thinking behind it. Um, and so we do have something called advanced play, care planning, which would go on in the beginning. I think what happens in the UK, if you go to a memory clinic, you get a diagnosis of dementia, you would be under what's called a psychogeriatrician. And that psychogeriatrician over here often refers on to either social care, I think, generally. They would care plan with you as well. So the social care team would plan with you. But that, as I said, is means tested. So you would, you know, you might well be paying for it. Um, but we also have something, uh, you probably know about the Alzheimer's Society over here in the UK. Mm -hmm. We also have something called um, the Alzheimer's Society. So this is the way that charities have stepped up called a dementia navigator. Mm. And it's like a key worker who would work alongside the family and the person with dementia to also try and navigate services with someone. So it, the idea being, I guess, that what you're describing, where you have to take it all on your own and try and work through this web of complexity, which is a minefield. Mm -hmm. The idea being that a dementia navigator would take some of that stress and burden off you. There are ways to access that here. Mm. Generally, you would go to a local place, like senior placement um, agency. Mm -hmm. They work on commissions, so they would walk you through a lot of that. They would, okay. they would say, "Oh, I'm not sure they would do as much of the planning. That's probably all based on who you end up discussing with." But they can point you in the direction of a lot of services and make recommendations based on what you're wanting. But your system's a little bit better. So we need, there's another thing we need to work on. It's just <laughs> insane, you know, because as I've mentioned before and before we started recording, it's like I was completely unaware of the vast quantity of services and support and information available. And the biggest reason is because it's not centralized. And so yeah. I have a very large plan to find a way to centralize that. I don't know if I could pull it off, but that's a 2021 <laughs> project to start working on. So. <laughs> I have all the pieces. I got to find the person that can help put the pieces together and push it forward. So, you know, like the 2020 wasn't enough, right? <laughs> How would somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia benefit from palliative care and their loved ones? I think we kind of touched on it a little bit, but. I think the thing in the, I mean, so, you know, I do have clients who've got dementia. The way that I see it is, well, I might start sounding a bit philosophical now, but so someone with dementia, their minds are usually fragmenting and ebbing away. And the, one of the things that occurs to me with palliative care is it's, it's really multidisciplinary team working. So you've got a social worker who might be thinking about the financial implications of receiving care. They might be thinking about, you know, do you, would you benefit from a befriending volunteer? You know, the social aspects of a person's life. Um, 
you might have a psychologist or psychotherapist like me going in and I'd be able to sit with someone with dementia or their family members who might be talking about how hard it is to care for someone and how exhausted they are and how they feel angry about, you know, what they've been beset with. Or the person with dementia might be able to talk to the psychotherapist about, you know, how how frustrating it is to lose their words how scared they are of, you know, losing themselves even, you know. And then you've also got the, the the physical, the medics who would be able to, you know, talk to them about the memory changes, the cognitive decline, you know, put frame it like that. Um, and then you've often, in palliative care, you've usually got chaplains or spiritual care leads. So, you know, if someone's doubting their faith, for example, or having kind of wild dreams, they'd be able to sit with them and process that. So the way I see it in some ways is your mind is fragmenting. The carer is often feeling as they're fragmenting. You've got this body of professionals around you that are saying, look, we're keeping you in mind. We're keeping all of you in mind. And so... You know, that's me idealizing things a bit. I'm sure, you know, it doesn't always work out like that, but there's something to be said for feeling cared for when A, you're a carer and when, you know, when you're scared, you know, i.e. the person. Um, and, you know, and, and beyond that, there's real practical things, you know, there are day centers often, day therapy services, well-being services that people can access. Um, yeah, I just think people need to be looked after. Well, I agree. <laughs> you know, I've been, uh, this whole past political season that we've, uh, lived through over here. I keep telling people, especially with our, our, um, segment of the population that's very resistant to wearing a mask. They feel that it infringes on their personal freedoms. I keep telling people true patriotism is taking care of each other. Like we don't need the government to do it or tell us how to do it. We just need to do it ourselves. And true, if you want the freedoms that America is known for, that comes with a very large amount of personal responsibility. And we forget that half. So that's that's my little uh, rant on, on taking care of each other. It's very important. So is, is that, would that be your... The, the you're in your opinion the most important reason for somebody with dementia to access palliative care is that it just kind of kind of holds you all together I like think there's something in that I think you know um when I said you know that the palliative derives from that word to cloak someone in care I think there's something about it which is which is quite different often to social care so social care, someone might go in and prompt you with meds or make your dinner. Now, it's getting better over here. It's becoming much more relationship-centered, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think palliative care starts from that basis already in, a, in, in the UK in a way that it doesn't. But I think it also mitigates against crises, as you, as you were saying. You know, if, I just think if people are in the loop of systems early on, and people are known to services, you know, it mitigates against those really awful moments where someone's suddenly in a state of decline and there's nothing there to catch them. 
there's something about accessing services early, I think, that just takes the bit, the anxiety out. I have a listener who's also in my support group who probably will recognize the, that fact. Mm. She was taking care of her mom and her mom was terrible with her and much better with other people. And I suspect that a lot of their crises might have been averted if they had been in the in the systems like you're talking about earlier mm -hmm. on. There's a, many reasons why that was difficult, but you know, that's why I wanted to talk to somebody about this because I was searching for more help for my mom because she was very combative and the doctor was very lackadaisical on, I think he recognized there wasn't really anything he could do. And unfortunately in our country, not much he could do meant there was not a lot of revenue source from my mom, which is a really horrible way of putting it. I hope mm. that's not what he was thinking, but you know, when you have to run a medical practice, those aren't cheap. So I don't say that as a really horrible thing. It's just, you know, when you can't help somebody, you know, it's, I can see why his, why he was sort of ho-hum on dealing with her issues. Well, I think that's the other interesting point you raised, I think, is that generally speaking, medical care is about getting people better, right? And there's a certain amount of heroics in it, you know, so we've got to cure you. Yeah. And de dementia can't be cured. And so, so palliative care the, they're looking at they're looking at people through a different lens. They're not trying to make you better. They're trying to, you know, support you in a way where I guess in some ways, how do we accept this awful situation? But but you know, there's something about that I think that's really vital. I mean, the other thing that occurs to me is that carers, you know, certainly in in the UK, I expect are saving the government millions, you know, and carers need a break yeah so, um it can be exhausting and palliative care services and and often have links to things like you know respite provision care provision and so forth so it does actually allow people to have a bit of a break probably not enough of a break but it's better um, than no break which is important though because you know you can't keep caring if you're running on empty that's when crises happen, I think, very often. Oh, agreed. And I frequently spout this statistic is that 65% of caregivers, and I'm assuming it's pretty similar over your side of the world, are hospitalized or worse before the person they're caring for yeah. is gone. Yeah. Now, that's a pretty bad number. Yeah. And I know how I felt dealing with my mom, who everybody knows was in a care home. I can't imagine. I, I And I have said the reason that after my dad, before my dad died, my sister and I had made the decision to put her in a care home. My sister's got school age kids. So, you know, it's just at our ages, that wasn't really an option. And mm. we were we were very lucky that mom had the money to support a care home, which is unfortunately not always an option. It's frequently not an option over here. But one of the things in this person that I'm mentioning, I know that a lot of their, a lot of the solutions that were offered to her 
was just call 911. The, right. Um, yeah, yours is 999, right? Yeah. So okay. palliative care, if you accessed palliative care ordinarily over here, you probably wouldn't phone 911. You'd phone the palliative that- care team. And if you were in your home, so, so my mum recently d- did die of a brain, can- brain cancer. Mm. And we accessed palliative care over here really early. And so, uh, which is not dementia, but she had lots of multiple seizures. And we phoned the palliative care team rather than 911, which meant that they contained it within the home. So you didn't have all of that, you know, real panic, people, her being blue lighted, my dad, you know, getting lost on the way to the hospital, so on and so forth, you know, with the fear that she might, you know, die in, in an A&E ward. You know, so that was taken out of it. That's the, I think, one of the advantages of palliative care. I mean, recently I ended up, I ended up writing a book about it because I was so relieved that she had got, you know, that kind of care. It seems to me that palliative care would help maintain your quality of life. Yes. I think that's the, that's the real thing about it. You're absolutely right. Because I know it's it's a real challenge, and my husband and my daughter, who are t- is 29 today, mm-hmm. we had a lot of conversations about, I had made comments to the effect of, if mom got pneumonia, was not going to send her to the hospital, I would mm-hmm. call hospice. Yeah. If mom XYZ, and I said, I know that you know, my head says this is right, but I yeah. know if that actually happens, the two of you are going to have to like literally stand behind me and say, no, you said this and you know, that's right. Right now your heart's talking. And it's, it's, I think it's really difficult because people automatically say, well, you know, we need to go to the hospital and fix the pneumonia or like when my mom fell and broke her leg I had to go through the decision of whether or not to do the surgery. And I was 99% certain that we would not because of her advanced Alzheimer's. I was extraordinarily concerned that any kind of anesthesia would just make her worse or, you know, I, I didn't see a really good outcome to anesthetizing her. And I'd heard horror stories and I just thought, you know, it I didn't think it was going to be a good ending, but it was like, I didn't want her not to be able to walk. And I knew that it wasn't a great situation when the surgeon who I don't know about over there, but over here, surgeons like to do surgery. (laughs) When he basically said she's going to need physical therapy, regardless of whether she does the surgery or she does not. And I said, how many days do I have to see if she's going to be open to doing the physical therapy before, you know, the bones start fusing back together in a bad way, you know, and then just that requires even more surgery. And I, he, I think it was like 10 days to two weeks. I brought in the traveling physical therapist. She fought him off. Like he was some sort of attacker and I'm like, okay, well (laughs) it was a good decision not to do the surgery, but that was really, really hard because yeah. I felt like I was making a life or death situation or decision 
And thankfully, I had talked to a guest about mindfulness and and what he had taught me. I'm not one of those woo-woo mindful persons. So, (laughs) but what he taught me really, really helped. And we just went forward. So it's with Alzheimer's and dementia, it's really hard to balance quality versus quantity because the quality of their life just disintegrates. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to just be like, yeah, whatever, just let her just, you know, you don't want to be cavalier about their living or dying. No, but of course not. But I think, I think what, you know, what, that, what your experience sort of points to is the inordinate amount of pressure on, you know, you as a care and as a carer for your mum to be left with those very, very difficult decisions, you know, on your own. And I think that's one of the advantages of accessing palliative care early, because you might have been able to have some of those kind of conversations early. So, and I think that's the difficulty with dementia, because it's not explicitly seen as a terminal condition people don't have the conversations you know and then it's left to a point where someone's having to make the make the decisions on behalf of the person with dementia now if a palliative care team came in early enough at least in the UK everyone would be get together and say and so those questions would be asked do you want to be resuscitated if you go down with such and such that question is asked of people and so, you know, then the, the, the carers are left knowing categorically, well, mum or dad or my husband or whoever it is, they've said, no, don't resuscitate me. So, you know, they'd be looked after either at home or, or in a hospice. So it's, it's very, I think it takes that kind of feeling of I'm being left, you know, shortening you know my loved one's life it it takes that out of your hand it, it's because it's a horrible thing to be left with i have repeatedly said my maternal grandfather who died from cancer said you don't get out of this world alive no <laughs> which is very true and i always kind of use that as a guiding light to decision making Like in this lockdown, you know, I couldn't see my mom for two weeks. And I know people who loved ones are in care homes. They haven't been able to see them at all or through a window. And Mm. I just think there's got to be a better way. I went right before Halloween to my mom's residence to deliver little care packages. Mm -hmm. And they've got plexiglass dividing the square tables into basically four segments And I'm like, these people aren't really getting visitors. They're not going out to the park or, you know, like the only places they're going maybe are the doctor. I'm like, this is too much. And I'm probably one of the few people that I just, I think that we need, you know, us and you guys, we need to come up with rules and guidelines for how families can go in and visit. That's Mm. still keeping them relatively safe, but you know, we're not going to get out of this world live. Why are we prolonging somebody's dying? I think that's with when you get to the end stages of Alzheimer's, I think it's really difficult to realize when they start transitioning. Cause I didn't quite see that with my mom. Part of it was because the care team didn't tell me, Oh, we're having to feed her a lot more often. She's forgetting how to eat. And 
the dementia covers up a lot of the signs that you're transitioning to the end and it, it makes it a lot harder. So we're constantly mm. saving them, dragging out their, you know, we're, we're saving their life. We're saving their life. No, you're dragging out their death. So I probably sound like a horrible person to some people, <laughs> but having gone through this twice with people whose cognitive abilities was not great. Like my dad didn't realize he was on hospice. Mm. That was not, and that was, that was absolutely what he wanted. It was just, ugh, you know, so, and my, mater, my paternal grandmother, who people know is 102, did not want to have all of these conversations. My grandfather, her husband, I think he was probably the only one in my entire family on both sides that planned everything. He had the, everything from don't resuscitate me to here's where we're going to be buried. And we got this double head. Yeah. I mean, he had yeah. it all planned out. She did not want to talk about it. And I've got to figure out a, a way of gently asking her, do you regret that? Because now she's told me she wants to donate her body to science, which I find really surprising. Might have to ask my aunt about that. But I think the conversation, I think once you have it and you get over that icky feeling, mm -hmm. then you, I think you, it, you'll get a sense of relief. Like, okay, the, the decision, like you were saying, is not all on me. We've mm -hmm. had this conversation, like my yeah. husband and daughter know how I feel. I think, you know, if I get Alzheimer's, they're just going to leave me on the side of the road, but that's a different story. And I know our systems are different, but would you, I'm thinking, I like palliative care. They don't, I would think you would have to access it more in the middle stages of Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah, I think there's something about that, where, you know, where, where you're at. I mean, there's a huge movement in the UK, I think, because historically, I mean, the thing about dementia is, is that it, it brings us face to face with two things, I think, around about way. One, our own dependency, because someone with dementia is going to become absolutely dependent. So that stirs anxiety in most of us, because it probably takes us back to being a newborn crying and not having any control, you know. But the other thing is death. And death historically in Western cultures has been taboo. No one wants to talk about it. No. It's too scary a thought. And in the, in the UK at the moment, there's a real kind of, I don't know, death revival is the wrong word. But, <laughs> you know, people thinking you know, especially in this pandemic, good goodness, we've got to talk about it. We can't sweep it under the carpet. We've got to know what we all want. You know, there's an awful lot of state when you don't say goodbye to someone. Usually your bereavement is much harder. You know, so how do we have these really difficult conversations that we don't want to have? The thing is, I think if we have them and not be in denial of what's coming, it probably means in some ways that the dying person feels less isolated. You know, they're not sort of stuck in their own feelings and panic because other people can hear them. And it also means that those of us that are caring for someone um, know that we're pretty much trying to do things according to the person's wishes. Yeah, that's you know, exactly. I think if we don't know that, it does make it an awful lot harder. I did, I did kind of also use as a guiding light. My mom, well, she would always say, well, I don't want to be a burden to you kids. But then she also said she didn't ever want to leave her home. So that was, 
<laughs> that was mutually exclusive. <laughs> and I just, I knew that, you know, there was many times I, I stated, you know, if she knew she was in a care home, if she knew she was having to wear, you know, the pull up diaper yeah. and that somebody was having to dress her and, you know, she would kill me. She yeah. would hate it. And I'm like, well, yeah. you know, you were not allowed to euthanize humans yet. So I didn't have a choice, but I always based my decisions on giving her the best quality of life, but not mm -hmm. extending the, the years of somebody else having to do everything for her. Yeah. Well, she made it very easy by falling and breaking her leg. And that was the last straw for her body. And, you know, that and at right at the beginning of the pandemic. So she really timed that quite well. I have to, I have to give her compliments on that one. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. If you know the person, you know, what you say really resonates because I think my mother was the same. There's no, you know, there's no way she'd have wanted to go on and on, you know, bed bound, being turned in bed, ugh. you know, and, um, I think what we've done in the West, at least, is we've medicalized death. So we exactly what you say. We keep prolonging lives that, you know, many years ago, people wouldn't have been able to have been kept alive. So, so there's something about how do we adjust in some ways um, to, to giving people the best quality of life. Because, of course, if you're running up and down hospitals and having operations, quality of life is, you know, it's, it's getting lost usually. Yeah, the um, last, the month that my dad was in the hospital, you know, he started, you know, he, first off, he didn't know what year it was, but then oh. being in a hospital for a month, he was getting the hospital-induced delirium. At one point, they had hit, you know, they had to put the, basically the zippered cage, for lack of a better term, over the hospital bed to keep him from leaving. I mean, it was a miserable month. It was just miserable. And when I talked to his nephrologist, which is a kidney doctor, for those mm -hmm. people who have not had to deal with that, and she was telling me, you know, and I knew he didn't want to be on dialysis. He was on dialysis in the hospital. They thought if they cleared the toxins from his system that his memory would improve. That was not the case. You know, I, I can understand why they thought that, so I don't hold that against them. But it you know, when they decided, okay, it's time to release him from the hospital, they're like, okay, well, somebody's going to have to drive him to dialysis, sit with him because he's trying to pull the needles out of his arm and drive him home. And I said, I work. And this is like, he's 20 miles from me. So I'm going to have to drive 20 miles to his house, get him in my car, drive him halfway back towards my house, sit with him for three or four hours, three days a week, I'm like, honey, I said, you know him, you're his doctor. We are in a very dark gray area of not respecting his um, advanced directive. I said, mm -hmm. I think we need to call hospice. You want to know what happened? I got a dial tone. She hung up on me. So that was my first experience. Mm. He was released from the hospital. He, within a week, fell and I said, take him to the other system that with the hospital was that particular hospital system was closer to his house, was not convenient for my sister and I. Much better care. 
the nephrologist on staff at that hospital said, um, you know, they were having a very difficult time when they did dialysis of keeping his heart rate up. She spent 20 minutes on the phone with me, which is an extraordinary amount of time explaining mm. blah, blah, blah. And I, and I told her the same thing. We're in a very dark gray spot of not respecting his wishes. And she goes, Oh, okay, well we can call hospice. And I was, I mean, I was in my car and I dang near crashed because I was just so relieved. And I get there the day he's to be released and they're doing dialysis and they, the this other kidney doctor wants to talk to me. And when she realized the expression on my face meant something different than they thought, we went in the hallway and I said, um, we've already um, planned on hospice. And she goes, that's probably a better plan. So <laughs> thankfully, my first experience with suggesting hospice was very bad. The rest of it was very good. Mm. And, and it was fantastic because between them and the in-home care staff to take care of both of them, they handled almost everything. So we could just go and visit. Yes. I would pick up I would pick up his mom on the way over and we would all visit. And it wasn't always pleasant, but that was my dad. Um, you know, so that was a very nice it was as nice an ending as it could have yes. been. Yeah. So keep that in mind, everybody. And when you're on palliative care, it's different than hospice because you don't have to stop treatments or stop medications correct? Yeah. Certainly in the UK, that's the case. Yeah. The, the, what I learned about palliative care earlier in 2020, that was the case. And, um, I think, I think you can get palliative care both in your own home or a care home. I'm going to have to follow up on that with a companion article to this one. Cause we got a couple of questions that you can't answer because when I realized what you did, I, I reached out to you and then I didn't realize you were in the UK until we started scheduling. I was like, oh, well, fortunately, the systems are similar enough. And I've talked to enough people over on your side of the world that, you know, it's I've I've learned how to translate the systems a little bit. Gosh, yeah, it's like, I don't know if that's good or bad. I guess dynamic learning is good for me. And you said you've worked with people with Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah, I um, I. Years and years ago, I worked in frontline care in, in care homes. So I was a care worker, then an activities coordinator. Then I used to train staff teams. So I've had a long history of working in dementia. And I ended up doing a, a PhD and writing a book called Holding Time, which is about, about going into uh, care homes of people with dementia and to try to understand what was going on in the relationship dynamics between professional care staff and people with dementia. So, um, yeah, I've spent a long time in that field. I mean, that was my biggest, biggest passion. When I first ever got into a care home, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> um, and I met the first lady I ever key worked, and this isn't her real name, so it's just, I mean, she's not alive now, but to protect her anonymity, but I'll call her Melly for the sake of it. She was just a, she was a lady in her 80s and she couldn't speak anymore. The only word she could speak was no, <laughs> and, uh, which she always used very, very ferociously when you tried to clean her teeth. Um, but she and I just it was one of those relationships where, you know, our eyes would meet. She was very, very mischievous. 
she would hide behind curtains and jump out at me. Goodness. And um, yeah, I think it changed my life completely because, you know, while it's, you know, as you know, it's very, very hard work. Um, people with dementia are still there in, 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 in different ways, aren't they? You know, they're mm-hmm. emotionally really alive, you know, and I was lucky there. I worked with lots of people that were into music and the arts and you'd put pieces of music on and people just come completely back to life. And, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah. It was, I've ne- never been able to shake it. That's the thing. Ne- and also my grandmother had Alzheimer's in Wales. So, you know, it all, it all pieces together. Well, I'll make sure the book is linked in the show notes if people are interested in that. Do you have like one last suggestion on when we should consider palliative care, how we should consider it? I think one of the things I would say is how do we, how do any of us as families learn to talk to one another honestly and openly about these very frightening things of like becoming ill with anything, but with particularly with cognitive decline, you know, and, um, how do we talk about, how do we talk about dying in a way that, you know, we don't think it's going to upset one another? Because the last thing I think any parent would want is to burden their children in some ways with all of that worry on their own. And similarly, spouses and partners. So there's something about how do we do it as a culture anyway? How do we, how do we have those conversations? And in terms of palliative care, I think, you know, very often, I don't know about you, but over here we have things like power of attorney. So if someone's diagnosed with with dementia, I just think get those things down quickly. Don't shy away from it. Get get power of attorney in place. Get your advanced directives in place if you can. Um, And probably call on palliative care teams early, even if it doesn't mean that, that you're accessing the actual services because you don't need to but access them early to try to think about things about what might be on the horizon it's not that you're actually getting visits regular visits but you've at least touched base with people that can help you to think about these things that's what i you know what i would do over here at least now that makes perfectly good sense and as a person that likes to plan out Mm-hmm. You know, I don't plan out every minute of my day or anything quite that insane, but I just, I like to have some, some goals, you know, like, okay, I need to get these things done. You know, here's, here's this big dream goal. So there's some steps towards, you know, maybe seeing if I can make that happen. And I've had this conversations with my family. Like I said, my daughter just turned 29 today. I'll be 54 next week. So by the time this comes out, everybody will be older. <laughs> And, you know, we've had these conversations because I've lived through it with my parents and, and in some respects, my grandparents and, you know, it's, it's a lot. I think actually when you approach the conversation, you think, oh, this is going to be awful. This is, it's, it's, but I think you have a sense of relief when you've had it and you're like, oh, and the one example I can give, I had a guest whose husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And, you know, he goes into his fear response and into his head. She goes into her fear response. Mm -hmm. And the smartest thing they did 
was she told him her biggest fear, which was mm-hmm. that he would forget her. And his biggest fear was that she would just basically dump him in a care home and forget about him. And once they understood each other's fears, they were able to navigate taking care of each other and him mostly. And she took care of him for nine years. He never had to go in a care home. And I think addressing those concerns early may have made that easier. Well, yeah, I think you're, you know, you're onto something in the sense that when, you know, when we get overwhelmed with anxiety, fear, you know, we feel vulnerable. Oftentimes we recoil or withdraw into ourselves. So it creates disconnect. And in some ways, the last thing you want when you're navigating the journey of dementia is disconnect, makes it really hard. And so, and vulnerability, if we're able to express what we're feeling vulnerable about, tends to bring us closer together. That is true. Because we're dropping our defenses. And, you know, the other thing that occurs to me is in dementia, it's such an uncertain journey that wherever you can get a little bit of control, because you're not going to have a lot of it, you know, you need those, those just keep you on a bit of an even keel, you know, cause you're going to have to let go of a lot of control. So where you can get it. Um, but yeah, you know, everybody's experience is going to be vastly different though as well. And, you know, I guess you can't, you can't beat yourself up. Can you, you know, most people are trying their damnedest. Mm-hmm. And I laugh a little bit because. There are many members of my family that are control freaks. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes it very difficult to navigate caring for somebody when you want to control everything and and coordinate everything and get it all just working in the right direction. And it doesn't work that way. No, I, mean, you, I always... You know, when my daughter was a baby, we'd get her on a on a schedule. It's like, oh, good, this is a great schedule, and boom, she'd change it. And that's exactly what was going on with my mom. Yeah, yeah. and and it's really hard. I'll, I'll admit to being one of the control freaks, not as bad as some of the others, but a little bit. It's really difficult when you feel like you have no control over anything. So I think that's yeah. excellent advice: is that it it gives you little pieces of control, places you can find stability. And I think that's, that's key. A little bit of control, stability, just, it's like one more big, deep breath when you're being a carer. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it stands to reason, doesn't it? It's understandable, you know, dementia, dying, it's, it's the, you know, you've got no control. So in some ways your response is to get more controlling it's frightening you know Mm -hmm. when we're frightened we get controlling in some ways we get worried and but um but I I if you if you can talk about that I mean I would say this obviously (laughs) I'd say talk about everything but if you can talk about it I think you know you can start to understand where the control comes from perhaps sometimes I've learned oops go ahead I have learned so many fantastic things this year of this crazy year and so many things I wish I'd known Mm. early on. And my mom had Alzheimer's for about 20 years. Yeah. And I think probably the last 10 palliative care might've, I definitely think it would have helped 
my parents because my dad mm. had chronic illnesses and I think that it would have really benefited him. Mm. Um, I don't know. I'd have to think on it if it would benefit if it would have been helpful if my dad was not part of the picture, if it would have helped my sister and I, maybe. Mm -hmm. Hard to know. But it's just it's it's definitely something we need to be aware of and something we need to, like you said, access it early so you at least have the information. Yeah. Because one of the things I learned in 2020 is I tried to get my mom on palliative care after she fell and broke her leg. And I think because of the start of the pandemic, they were so overwhelmed that mm. I called her, she called me, I called back and left a message. And a week later, she called me. Well, a week is a long time. By that yeah. point, I'd already gotten hospice, assuming that my mom would graduate from hospice and then we would just institute the palliative care. But like I said, she had other plans. So this has been fantastic. And I very much appreciate that you gave up your evening to educate everybody. <laughs> and you're in the middle of renovating a home. So that's even more impressive. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for inviting me. You're you know, welcome. I'm, I'm just sure what you're doing is going to help an awful lot of people. I hope so. so. Like I said, I've learned so much that I wish I'd known before that the only thing I can do is, is share it with as many people as possible so that nobody else is saying, wow, that would have been really helpful to know 10 years yeah. ago. <laughs> Well, it's a big-hearted act, isn't it, yes, on your behalf? It is, but keeps me, you know, it's it's good for me too. So, and I, yeah. these conversations are always so fun. Okay. Alrighty, thanks so it's much. Lovely to meet you. You too. Many people who I recommend palliative care to confuse it with hospice care. I hope this conversation helps you understand the difference. I know people that have been on palliative care for years and years, and they swear by the supportive benefits that they get and their family members get. With that in mind, please share this episode with friends and family or anyone you believe will benefit from learning about palliative care. I'm also pleased to announce that starting this month, February 2021, I will have a regular guest host Dr. Elena Muji. She will be talking to us about all things aging well. Our first conversation is about frailty. And yes, it's actually a medical thing. Stay tuned for that and listen for more details on upcoming Dr. Elena episodes. While I've got your attention, let me tell you about the modules in the eight-week online course from Caregiver Chronicles. It starts out with, what is a caregiver? then educating yourself on the diagnosis. Caring for a sick loved one and observing your loved one's religious beliefs, how to live a healthy lifestyle as a caregiver, navigating the medical professionals, understanding medication, super important, legal matters, also important, the decision maker, insurance, community resources, durable medical equipment, when a caregiver is needed, finding a caregiver, placement in a skilled nursing facility or memory care residence, family dynamics, challenges, and conflicts. Learning how to navigate that is probably worth the entire fee. Then there's home health, hospice, then planning for your loved one's transition. Be sure to check out their weekly live Ask Dr. Yvette Anything. The link for that is also in the show notes. And as always, 
I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday.